You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. June 6th, 2018. The Golden State Warriors, perhaps the greatest basketball team of all time, are playing their bitter rivals, the Cleveland Cavaliers, for the fourth consecutive year in the NBA Finals. Now, this is game three of the series, and the Warriors are clinging to a three-point lead with just under a minute left to play. Kevin Durant, now in his second year playing for the Warriors, dribbles the ball past half court. Durant himself has had a tumultuous tenure as of late. For years now, he's been compared to LeBron James, often coming up second in the greatest player in the world debate, whatever that phrase means. But now, the whole world is watching, and there's a wrinkle in the story. See, Durant is playing against LeBron tonight, who's donning a Cleveland Cavaliers uniform, which means this game, one shot, could change the debate for good. He dribbles to his left, receives a screen from his teammate, and suddenly, some 30 feet from the basket, he springs up an absurdly deep three-point shot. If this shot goes in, he ices the game. If this shot goes in, the Warriors go up three games to none in the series, a deficit that has never been overcome in the history of the NBA. And the fans wait with bated breath as the ball glides towards the rim. A second passes, but it feels like an eternity. And then, one noise. Swish. This shot, this moment, has stuck out in my mind this week as I've been reading the text and preparing for for our uh, time together today. But it actually isn't the shot itself that sticks out from this moment. It was an incredible play, but the reaction to this shot might have been even more incredible particularly from two of Durant's teammates, Steph Curry and Draymond Green. Uh, Both of those players became an instant meme. They went viral immediately after this game. And I've actually got an image here that I'm going to screen share with you of their reaction to this shot. I think you might find it entertaining. This is Steph Curry and Draymond Green reacting to Kevin Durant's shot. Durant is in the middle. He's the one who's hit the shot. Green on his left and Curry on his right. They are screaming support in his face. And it's funny, if you see Durant's face on the next slide here, he's stone cold. He's, he's got ice in his veins, but Curry and Draymond Green are in his face. They're making sure that the only thing he sees or hears are their encouraging voices, their support. There's an aggressiveness to them, right? They're just in his face the whole time. We're in the middle of a series entitled uh, Stronger Together. And the subtitle of this series is The Art of One Anothering. We're looking at the phrase one another as it's used all over the New Testament. And today, the passage we're looking at in Hebrews, I think really encourages us as Christians to support one another in a similar way to Steph Curry and Draymond Green. And what we find is that when we do that, when we support and encourage one another with the fervor that these two support their teammate, we'll find transformation occurs not only in us, but in the world around us. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. We're going to be reading from there. So if you've got a Bible or an app, feel free to open it up. I'm going to read out loud once again. That's Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. 
Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I first read through this text, uh, there was something that stuck out to me right off the bat. It's an assumption that the author is carrying. You may have noticed it, but I'm also an English nerd and notice grammar things like this. Uh, Did you see the author uses the plural constantly to describe Christian living in this passage? He uses the word us twice. He uses the word our. He uses one another twice. Together, he uses. He uses the word you in the plural, you all there's an assumption that the author is carrying here that the Christian life is a mutual one. It's about doing this life in community, not independent of one another. I've had numerous conversations with friends in recent weeks and months about what it means to be a Christian, uh, how we do this Christian life. And I've heard an idea floated from them uh, that is an interesting one. They've they've articulated, they feel like they can follow Jesus, uh, they can have a relationship with him, without really living in community, uh, without attending a church regularly, without being uh, accountable to others. And to be fair to my friends, I think the church, capital C, church, the big church across the world has contributed to this individualizing of faith. Uh, I think one, because the church has hurt people throughout its history. And so people have a hesitancy to enter into community when they know it has hurt people in the past. But I think it's actually true in how we talk about the spiritual life sometimes too. Think about how, for instance, the church uh, can sometimes talk about salvation. Uh, The idea is this, just believe in Jesus and believe that he died for your sins. Believe that he has forgiven you. Get yourself baptized and you will be good to go. You will have punched your ticket to heaven. You will be saved. And technically, none of those things are bad things in and of themselves. Intellectual understanding of faith and Jesus, important. Uh, Baptism, essential to the Christian life, right? But if we leave it there, it's dangerously incomplete. If we leave it to just us, it's dangerously incomplete. Because it can start to imply that we're just performing some sort of act in our minds. That this is just an intellectual endeavor, independent of the community around us, independent of accountability to anyone or anything beyond ourselves. And this subtly starts to flip the pronoun game that the author of Hebrews is using here. It reverses the Christian life from being about one another and makes it about me. Augustine, a famous theologian from the fourth and fifth century, actually used a Latin phrase to describe this. This is not a new thing. This has existed well, as long as humans have existed. The Latin phrase is incurvitus in se, uh, which literally means the heart turned inward on itself, to turn inward on ourselves. And oftentimes we talk about this inward turn in in terms of physical desire, carnal desire. So uh, we turn inward on ourselves when we pursue sex in a way that God hasn't ordained, or we pursue alcohol in a way that's unhealthy to us and others. We pursue money in an unhealthy way, right? That's often how we describe this inward turn, but I think that same inward turn actually leaks into our spiritual lives often. Martin Luther echoed this same idea. He said, scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical, 
but even spiritual goods for his own purposes, and in all things seeks only himself. When we make the Christian life just about me, we use religious language to mask the fact that we aren't practicing a real living relationship with God and with others. And ultimately, we become the ones who define everything. And this has two major implications for us as Christians. One, it turns God into a vending machine. We've put in our quarters of faith. We set our prayer. We've done our actions. We do our part. And God does the rest by giving us the bag of chips that we paid for. When we make God the means to our end, we terminate any real relationship because it's not mutual. We're in complete control. And by doing this, we silence the voice of the living God whose breath gives life to all things. We prevent him from convicting us, from speaking into our lives, from using other people to support and encourage us. So that's the first thing this individualized faith does. It turns God into a vending machine. The second thing it does is it prioritizes convenience. See, since we control the terms of the relationship, we actually control the practice as well. And so we start to develop a habit of just praying when we want to or when we feel like it, or when we or not praying when we don't feel like it, right? We read scripture when we want to or when we feel like it, or don't if we don't feel like it. We love our neighbor when it's convenient for us, and otherwise we just walk in our front door and ignore them. See, we don't actually have accountability to anyone but ourselves in this way, and a small examination reveals that no healthy relationship can actually exist this way. I can't say that I love my wife and then proceed to only practice that love for her when it's convenient and easy for me. That's not true love. That's not true relationship. Uh, Emily, my wife and I, I just looked over because our puppy is sleeping. We just bought a puppy this last week. And I can tell you from personal experience, man, it's not convenient to love a puppy. It's not convenient to be in relationship with a puppy. He cries every night in his crate. Yesterday, going to the bathroom outside, he didn't quite finish. And there was a little tiny puppy poo hanging from his tail. And I had to chase him around to get this puppy poo. It was inconvenient for me to love my puppy well. Those of you that have kids, man, I, I can't even start to speak about how hard having a puppy is, right? Having kids is the same thing. You know that sometimes loving, sometimes being in relationship actually is the opposite of convenience. Sometimes it takes work and intentionality. When we make Christianity an individual exercise, we turn this mutual relationship into a selfish act. And the church, like I said, has exacerbated this difficulty sometimes, but I think our culture um, does the same thing. Our world is defined by individuality. We believe that we're autonomous individuals, that we define our destinies, we choose our paths, right? We pick our spouses uh, or unpick them when we want to, to be rid of them and divorce them. We watch whatever movie or TV show we want at whatever time we want. We eat any kind of food whenever we want. Convenience for the benefit of self is the maxim of our age. And we allow this to carry into our faith. Just look at commonly how we mean, uh, or what we mean when we use the word spiritual in our age, right? To talk about spirituality oftentimes in our culture means a journey towards self-discovery, a journey inward, right? And self-discovery is not intrinsically a bad thing. But if we just keep it there, spirituality becomes only self-focused. And what we find in Christianity is that spirituality is primarily self-denial. 
certainly we need to discover ourselves, but we do that by turning our hearts outward. And when we find that we give ourselves up for others, we actually discover a deeper version of ourselves in the process. As long as we make our spirituality individualized, we will always neglect the central command of Jesus. As long as we make it about self-discovery and not about self-denial, we'll, we'll cease to love God and love our neighbors ourselves because we're terminating real, genuine relationship. We'll proceed to make our spiritual life and journey about me, not about us. And so the question for us as Christians, hearing these words from Hebrews becomes, how do we move from a me-centered life to an us-centered life? And there are three main things that the author brings up for us here in, these short, in this short passage, in these few verses. Uh, the first is to consider. That's in verse 24. The second is to provoke. Those two are interrelated. And then in verse 25, we get the word encourage. That's uh, the threefold path to living in this community. So let's look at each of those ideas. First, considering. The word here involves this sort of intense focus, this settling of our mind upon something, this deep contemplation of an idea or a person. The author is telling us here that the first step to challenging and encouraging one another to love and to good deeds is to hold one another in our mind and in our hearts before we act, to deeply contemplate the best way to communicate to one another. And this means intentional time thinking about each other. We don't just challenge or encourage blindly because we know that every one of our brothers and sisters is at a different place in their faith journey and we need to communicate to them where they are. We speak to the person by considering the best possible way to move them and motivate them. I just recently watched uh, the Michael Jordan documentary that ESPN released. It's now on Netflix if you want to go give it a watch. It's called The Last Dance. And one major theme throughout the whole documentary, uh, it's 10 episodes long, one major theme was the idea of motivation. Uh, the, the documentarians were concerned with, well, what motivated Michael Jordan? What motivated his teammates and his, his opponents? What motivated his coach? And I think there's much to learn about Michael Jordan in the documentary, but what stuck out to me most was actually his coach, Phil Jackson. He's considered one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time. And those teams he coached, the 90s Bulls teams, Michael Jordan's teams, had a variety of personality uh, traits in them. You had some guys that needed a long leash and some guys that needed to be tightly reined in. You had some guys that were super self-motivated, Michael Jordan. And you have other folks who really needed encouragement in order to, to play their best. And what became clear in the documentary from the interviews with Phil Jackson is that he knew each of his players really, really well. He had spent time contemplating how best to move them, to push them, how best he could lead his teams towards success. He considered well. And I think we as Christians are called to do something similar. The Spring Midtown, this little church community here, is full of a variety of personalities and motivators, many more than a basketball team. And it's up to each of us to consider well how we can best push each other towards love and good deeds. Real quick, if, if uh, you're not already on gallery mode in your Zoom call, go to gallery mode on your Zoom call and take a look at the names and faces here on this call. Do you know these people? Do you know what makes them angry? What gives them life? What they're worried about? What brings them joy? What motivates them? 
All of these questions are a part of considering. We need to know the people around us in order to help spur them on towards love and good deeds. So keep getting to know one another. Pray for one another. Work alongside one another. Do life with one another. This is what considering is all about. The second word that we get in this passage is the word provoking. And this is the aggressive word. It refers to in other places in the New Testament, a sort of butting heads with one another in order to come to a, a mutual decision. This is what Steph Curry and Draymond Green are doing to Kevin Durant. They're provoking one another. And sometimes the Christian life isn't composed only of soft and nice words. Sometimes it means challenging one another. Now, it's at this point that we need to remember the, the author here tells us to consider how to provoke one another. Those two are related. So we don't just provoke blindly. We have to consider one another first. We must deeply know each other well in order to provoke, in order to spur, in order to poke and prod each other towards love and good deeds. If we don't know one another well, then our provoking can actually be damaging. This occurs often with uh, some of the aggressive hellfire preaching that you see from street preachers, right? Who are just yelling at people they don't know, trying to motivate them. And even if they're well-intentioned, they haven't done the work of considering their audience well. They haven't done the work of being in relationship with people well. There was a, an old uh, video game system I actually still have, and it's called the Nintendo 64. And those of you who are nerds in the audience know this video game system well. There was a game in this video game system uh, called GoldenEye. It was a remake of a, a James Bond movie, and it's a great game. But it was challenging when you switched to multiplayer mode, when you played with multiple people in the game. Uh, and your job in this game was to, to eliminate the other players using the weapons found. And almost every time, there's one person in the game who picks up a rocket launcher, which is the most dangerous weapon in the game. He, he, he snags this thing that can destroy everyone, and they just go around in enclosed, tight spaces, letting off rocket after rocket. And what often happened was it, it would certainly eliminate his opponent, but it, it would often eliminate him too. He'd be in such close quarters that the rocket would blow everyone when we provoke one another like this, when we provoke one another with just a rocket launcher going around blindly, well, ultimately it destroys others and it destroys us. And so it's important when we provoke one another that we consider each other first. And when we find this to be true, when we do the, the deep work of knowing each other well, we get to know the fullness of our lives. We get to know the good things and the hard things. We get to see where our hearts can be weak and our motivations can be inconsistent. And so our challenging actually pulls one another back to the type of people that we're designed to be. The challenging doesn't destroy us. It actually mutually helps us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian who lived during World War II, said it this way. He said, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. There's a story of this sort of challenging and provoking uh, that happens in the New Testament. In the book of Galatians, we get this story uh, about Peter and Paul. 
Now, Peter, one of the original apostles, one of the original uh, folks who followed Jesus, was raised Jewish. Uh, but now he's a believer. He follows Jesus. And he knows that the gospel is designed for all mankind, not just for folks who practice Judaism. And so in Antioch, the city that he's in at the time of the story, uh, we're told that he eats with non-Jews, with Gentiles, that he kind of moves beyond the cultural dividing lines because he knows the gospel is for all people. But then when other high-profile Jews enter the city and he sees them, he actually ditches this practice. When he sees those folks that he's attempting to impress, he pulls away from the Gentiles and he sits again with the Jews and he reinforces those worldly dividing lines. And Paul, another apostle of Jesus, not one of the original 12, but he wrote much of the New Testament. He hears of this and he rebukes Peter. He calls him out. He provokes him. And it's important to identify why Paul does this. He doesn't provoke Peter to condemn him. He doesn't do it to make himself look better. He doesn't do it out of self-righteousness. He does it out of love because he knows what Peter is capable of when he submits to the Lordship of Jesus. He knows what Peter's life is capable of when it's transformed by the gospel. He knows that God has so much more for Peter than these silly worldly divisions, and he wants to move him in that direction. He only challenges Peter here. He only provokes him because he believes in him and he loves him. If he didn't care about Peter, he wouldn't provoke him in this way. He wouldn't care to push him in the right direction. And so in this same way, it's our job as Christians to provoke one another because we know what God is capable of in you and in me. We know what he can do with transformed lives because we have a kingdom vision of what this looks like. And so we poke and prod one another. We provoke one another because we love one another. The third word that we get in this passage is the word encouraging, that we're to encourage one another and not stop meeting together. Uh, this word involves this, this sense of comforting or, or strengthening each other. And so what we learn here is that there are times when provoking is needed, when a push is needed, and there are times when a hug is needed. And again, we want to go back to that first word, considering. We need to consider, to use discernment in order how to know uh, how we can best move one another and how we can best poke and prod one another and when we need to, well, really softly and calmly lift each other up. And there's a powerful uh, video that I want to share with you that I think illustrates this idea well. Uh, so I'm going to screen share this video real quick with you guys. Last Swansea Harrier probably won't know that Josh Griffiths has qualified for the World Championships. And look at him, he said, come on, it's there. You can do it. You can do it. Brilliant. This is so hard. I mean, this every single part of his body is shutting down on him. But what we're seeing also is the camaraderie and the spirit of the marathon. How many of these guys are on for their personal best? They want to break that time, but they're still running by to see if they can help him. Yeah, the camaraderie, which is what the London Marathon Paula said, is all about. And Josh Griffith, the top uh, British man home, is a teammate, isn't he? He's a Swansea Harrier, and he'll be proud to see his fellow Swansea Harrier there sacrificing what could be a PB. Who knows? As uh, the guys said to get this Chorlton Harriers, this Chorlton runners over the line. And James, I know you've just run your own fantastic race, but when you see that, that kind of sums up, doesn't it, what this is all about? Yeah, it sums up and also the selfless nature of, of other runners. I, mean, I saw a couple of people in real trouble and, 
I gave a pat on the bum when I ran past and, and said keep going rather than stop and, and carry them over. So I'm feeling slightly guilty and selfish having uh, watched other people give up their race to help someone who's just emptied their tanks totally. I'm not sure if you caught the audio there on, on that video, but this is a marathon. This is the London Marathon. And one runner's body has completely shut down. Every part of him, he can't, he can't run anymore. He can hardly stand. And another runner sees this happening. He forgets, uh, he, he neglects his own finish line in order to help, help his fellow runner. And we get this same picture of running all over the New Testament. Paul uses the same picture that we're running a race together. And what's fascinating, you may have heard the announcers, you may not have. They mentioned that he may have even be given, been giving up here a personal best, a personal record. This might have been a record for him. He chose to give that up in order to help carry his peer. In the same way, we as Christians are all running this marathon together. And this is what it looks like to encourage one another. And in fact, this is the whole point of the gospel. Do you, do you see it? See, when we realize that we're saved only, only by the grace of Christ and his sacrifice, that our lives are redeemed not by our holy actions, not by how good we are, but by the work of Christ alone, we understand that our own effort, our own success, they don't establish our value anymore. The finish line of the race is not what establishes our value. It's the person of Jesus. It's relationship with him. It's knowing him and it's his sacrifice that he's given us. And when we realize this, we no longer need to strive for ourselves. The race is not about us. The race is about us coming together. It's about one another. And that means that I can actually start to come to the end of myself because I know my value is established by Jesus. I can start to love you entirely for your sake and not for my sake. See, when we realize that the race has been we can now run well together, living for the benefit of each other. As John Steinbeck said in his great work, East of Eden, now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. And something starts to happen when we do this together. Something starts to happen in us and in the world around us when we consider, provoke, and encourage each other in this way. We live in a world, especially right now, full of muddied water, mired in selfishness and tribalism, hatred. And we start to become vessels for God to bring clarity and life to that water. God shows himself through our love, through our considering, provoking, and encouraging. We get this uh, told to us in the book of John, the first epistle that he writes. First uh, John says, beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. And so we find that when we love one another in this way, we actually become reflections of God's love to the world. We reflect his light in a world full of darkness. And when this happens, when this genuinely happens, when we give ourselves up for our fellow runners, for the people around us, Christian or otherwise, people start to look at Christians differently. They start to say, man, there's something, there's something different about those people. Look at how they love each other. Look at their lives that they live. Look at how they give themselves up for one another. Witnessing to your Christianity 
is not just standing on a street corner and hoping people drop to their knees, though it can sometimes be that. It isn't just moving to a new country to share the gospel, though it can certainly be that. Regardless of where you are, regardless of your social location, in all circumstances, it involves a genuine commitment to this work of considering, provoking, and encouraging one another to love and to good deeds. That's what changes our lives. That's what changes the lives of our neighbors, of our city, and of our world. And so I, I think in keeping with our passage today, I actually want to practice these three things. I want to practice considering, provoking, and encouraging. So first, let's consider what's going on around us in our world. I know this season is difficult for all of us. We're sick of sickness. We're exhausted by isolation. We're enraged by injustice. And let's be honest, Zoom calls are the worst. Like I, I get done with a day of Zoom calls and my eyes are red and I just want to go to sleep. But the reality is if we're each individually feeling this way, if we're all feeling this sort of fatigue, then we also know that everyone around us is feeling something similar. This whole pandemic thing is affecting, well, everyone. Everyone is being affected by this virus in some way. We're not the only ones being challenged. And so knowing that, considering that, let's provoke one another to love and to good deeds in this season. Let's challenge each other to get beyond what's comfortable and put our neighbors before ourselves. And so maybe for you, this means choosing to mow a lawn or give a meal when the whole world is fighting over resources. Maybe it means giving time and energy at Hope Women's Center uh, to love our community, to love our neighborhood. Maybe this means paying for the groceries of the person in line behind you at the grocery store. Maybe it means listening and empathizing with someone's story. Maybe it means getting involved in a community group if you're not already, or even leading a community group so that you can live alongside believers and do more of this provoking. And then finally, let's encourage one another as well. And to do this, I actually have a mission for everyone on this call right now. At some point this week, spend time in prayer. Ask God to bring someone to mind for you to encourage and pray slowly. Listen for the voice of God. Listen for who God is putting in your heart and in your mind. And when you have someone, text them or give them a call or meet up with them if they're comfortable with that. And during your time with them, encourage them in their faith journey. It might mean grieving with them. It might mean celebrating with them. It might mean just listening to them. And what you'll find is that they might actually end up encouraging you. They might actually be the one who pushes you towards that finish line. But no matter what you do, be sure to encourage them. Remind them of God's love for them and your love for them. Tell them what you appreciate about their faith and their gifting, how they've helped you in some way. Remind them of who they are. Because we live in a world in dire need of transformation. We live in a world that needs hope and peace to replace despair and anxiety. We live in a world that needs love and compassion to replace hatred and indifference. And even though we may be required to socially distance in this time, even though we may be stuck inside for our days and our nights, uh, at least for long hours at a time, there's one important truth that we must, we must hold on to. The kingdom of God cannot be quarantined. Would you pray with me 